KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the battle on the abortion borderland. Amy Littlefield will describe the heroic work being done to help people seeking abortions in Texas, the most anti-abortion state, and in New Mexico, one of the most protective of abortion rights, one year after the repeal of Roe. Also, the new obstacles being raised by anti-abortion forces. Also later in the hour, from the archives, Katha Pollitt on Learning to Drive. First up, today's political report with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast. There's two big strikes in the works right now, hotel workers and actors. 160,000 actors may be on the verge of a strike. The union leadership announced at the beginning of this week that talks with the studios had been, quote, extremely productive, close quote, but on Tuesday, Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and hundreds of other top actors signed a letter declaring, we're prepared to strike in order to achieve a transformative deal. The letter aired concerns that SAG members may be ready to make sacrifices that leadership is not. They said what might be considered good in any other years is simply not good enough now, we feel that our wages, our craft, our creative freedom, and the power of our union have all been undermined in the last decade. We need to reverse those trajectories, close quote. Their contract expires at the end of this week. And of course, if the actors strike, they'll join the 11,500 writers already on strike. What do you make of this apparent split between the uh, top actors and the leadership of SAG? Well, I, I am not at this point at all uh, well-versed in what goes on internally in SAG. Once upon a time, many decades ago, when SAG was led by Ed Asner, which is to say the most militant leader it has ever had, then I followed it. I actually wrote a, a couple of speeches for Asner back in the day before I was a journalist. This is following a pattern that we've seen in which there is more labor militants up to and including professionals, which Lord knows Meryl Streep et al. <laughs> certainly are. You know, I mean, we live, in, we live at a time when doctors of all people are unionizing. The convergence of the proletarianization of professionals on the one hand, and the uh, sort of re reply to that being greater militants among professionals uh, uh, to, of course, you know, to counteract that. So this seems to be, you know, one, no pun intended, stellar example of that. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And the second big strike that's in the work is 15,000 hotel workers are preparing to strike in LA and Orange County uh, starting July 4th weekend. Their big event last week was uh, a protest at LAX where a couple of thousand people demonstrated and nearly 200 people were arrested. The union here, of course, is Unite Here Local 11. Notably, among the 200 people arrested 
were two members of the LA City Council and one member of the State Assembly, Council members Hugo Soto Martinez and Nithya Rayman, and Assemblywoman Wendy Carrillo. This protest was held after two months of contract negotiations between the union and the local uh, hotels. June 30th is the deadline the union has set. Uh, Hugo Soto Martinez said, we are here to shed light on the issues working class Angelinos face like a single mother who works as a housekeeper needing to work 17 hours a day to afford housing. We should note that Hugo is a former organizer for Unite Here. 20 protesters representing DSA were also arrested. The union is demanding an immediate $5 an hour raise. Uh, Union housekeepers at hotels now make between $20 and $25 an hour. The union estimates they need about $39 an hour to be able to afford the average rent on a two-bedroom apartment in L.A. Wages are their number one concern, but they're also seeking affordable family health care, a pension, and safer working conditions. Uh, What can you tell us about uh, Unite here and the L.A. hotel workers? Well, Local 11 historically is one of the most effective and militant unions in Los Angeles. I remember even the troglodyte conservative union leader, Lane Kirkland, when he was head of the AFL-CIO, even had an event in LA in which he uh, gave them a shout out for being, uh, you know, an exemplary union. And they are. It's not like these workers are going to be on strike against Motel 6, which has you know, limited profits per room necessarily. Uh, We're talking about being on strike against the Beverly Wilshire and uh, hotels like that, Beverly Hills Hotel, which charge a bazillion dollars a room and can afford giving these workers not just a $5 raise, but, you know, up to the $39 an hour that it takes to live modestly in a two-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. Now, I want to add that you've cited two strikes that may begin over the weekend. Let me cite a third, which is the uh, the mother of all strikes, UPS. Uh, the Teamsters put out a uh, an email on Wednesday saying they thought they were going to strike as soon as midnight between uh, June 30 and July 1. That would be a national strike of probably about 340,000 UPS drivers and warehouse workers, probably 40,000 of whom work in California. So welcome to strike summer, uh, America. Meanwhile, in L.A., the Dodgers uh, and the union representing 450 stadium workers reached an agreement last week on two new five-year contracts. The contracts give the lowest paid Dodger Stadium game day employees. This is ushers, security guards, ticket takers, ticket sellers. They are going to get wage increases of between 45% and 50% over a five-year period. Join a union, get a 50% pay increase. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, well, as a lifelong Dodger fan, uh, you know, go team. They they, they did exact. They did the right thing, and uh, you know, along with allowing the uh, the nuns in drag their uh, their moment in the sun, Dodger management is uh, is behaving responsibly. Although people, somewhat older people in Brooklyn, would still dispute, uh, you know, this affection for Dodger management given their 1958 <laughs> move across the country. A few of 
of of those people are still listeners to this broadcast even yeah well, the, well I was an eight-year-old kid when the Dodgers moved to LA so to hell with them <laughs> okay well we've we've uh, talked about the class war now let's talk about the real war in Ukraine and uh, politics in Russia this week in the prospect you provide a little historical perspective on the domestic political effects of a bloody and unsuccessful war yeah bloody and unsuccessful wars are are pretty much if you want to bring down a regime your chances rise uh, significantly if that if that regime is waging a bloody intractable gridlocked unsuccessful war russia has been through this in world war one you know, which brought down not only the Romanovs, but also the Hohenzollerns in Germany and the Habsburgs in Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans in, uh, in in Turkey and the Middle East. The French army mutinied in the middle of World War I because the soldiers could no longer stand running into German machine guns. Uh, Lyndon Johnson can attest to the problems of waging a uh, un- unsuccessful war. And, and Lyndon Russia. Johnson brings us, uh, brings us to Kerensky, I believe. Well, sort of, yes. What happened in in 1917 in Russia, so there have been some stories, you know, about how, uh, well, you know, you could have uh, parallel to the Tsar falling and the Bolsheviks sweeping in. But there were were six months, seven months between the Tsar falling and the Bolsheviks uh, sweeping in. And during that time, one of the uh, uh, provisional governor, provisional government's prime ministers was Alexander Kerensky, who was sort of a moderate in way over his head. And Kerensky's mistake in hindsight was that he he didn't end the war. He wanted Russia to keep fighting in World War I, even though uh, the casualties were horrendous. The troops were being forced by their officers to charge out of the trenches into German machine gun fire. They were deserting by the hundreds of thousands. And the Bolsheviks were organizing the troops to say enough. You know, we, we've had it. But Kerensky was viewed as too lenient by some of the old Tsarist officer corps that was still commanding the army. And uh, one of them kind of prefigured what we've seen in Russia over the last week. Uh, The head of the army, General Kornilov, said, "Uh, enough of this. I'm going to attack Moscow. This was in Uh, 1917, we're talking. This is in late summer 1917. And, you know, historians still haven't decided how much of this was initially coordinated with Kerensky, who wanted to get rid of the Bolshevik threat and thought, well, Kornilov can, you know, wipe out the Bolsheviks. But finally, he had a moment of clarity, realizing that Kornilov was also going to wipe out him and install himself as a military dictator. And so Kerensky said, OK, let's arm the Soviets, let's arm the Bolsheviks and workers who want to fight against Kornilov. And this deterred Kornilov from actually making his march on Moscow, that he had trains ready. Uh, and so he backed off. Now, of course, in arming the Bolsheviks, Kerensky merely ensured that they would overthrow him about six weeks later. But looking at the Kornilov affair as such, boy, does it sound familiar to anyone who's followed yes. the news in the last week. Yeah, I wonder what you make of the regular Russian army's apparent calm when the Wagner group took over their base in Rostov-on-Don. Yeah, I was reminded there that when the Bolsheviks did attack Kerensky's government, which took all of 
24 hours in the capital in Petrograd, there were no soldiers to defend Kerensky. They were, you know, okay, we don't care, which sounds very much like the reaction of the soldiers in uh, the regular Russian soldiers in Rostov on Dom, as you suggested. And now the New York Times is reporting that there may have been some generals in the Russian army who were actually working uh, with the Wagner group and were supporting them up to the time that they realized their necks might be on the chopping block. And so uh, all of this even more sounds like 1917 in Russia, except it's hard to identify any Bolsheviks or social Democrats or even liberals uh, who were waiting in the wings as, as they were certainly in 1917. Let me just note, this is the first time Kerensky has been discussed on this broadcast. And it's the first time Karnilov has been mentioned, I think, ever in the history of, of radio. He's having a big day today. Since He is. Now, I posted my piece on this yesterday, and the New York Times got around to posting its piece on this today. So to any listeners who want, uh, you know, want to be kept up to the minute on 106-year-old events, I would suggest going to the prospect <laughs> rather than the Times. Here, here. Next topic. We're number one, or are we? Oxfam recently compared 38 countries, including the United States, on 56 variables, and you have studied the results of this research. Where does the United States rank on wages, on unemployment insurance, on protections for workers, including the right to organize unions? Oxfam really did a kind of remarkable survey of the 38 unions that belong to the OECD, which is essentially all of the advanced, uh, all of the nations with advanced economies on the planet uh, that have some form of a capitalist system. So they weren't looking at China. And they found on issues of wages, wage legislation, unemployment insurance coverage, income, ability to have a living income, in other words, out of the 38 nations, the United States ranked 37th. Now, that doesn't allow for the fact that there are individual states in the United States that have raised their minimum wage ab above the federal level. So let me ask a couple of questions here, because I learned from your report that neither Denmark nor Sweden have ever enacted minimum wage laws, and yet they are not like Alabama or Mississippi. No, they're not, in, in two crucial ways, I would say. One is that the rate of unionization has been so high for so long that there was really no need to enact uh, minimum wage legislation. At, at, at the height of union strength in Sweden, which was several decades ago, 90% uh, of the workforce was unionized. Uh, that really does kind of obviate the need for any, any minimum wage uh, legislation. The other way in which it's really not like Alabama and Mississippi is the Scandinavian nations back in the day before the, you know, immigration started coming in from outside of Europe were, you know, ethnically almost completely homogenous. So there were no divisions of race within the working class or any other class, really, in, in, in Sweden and Denmark. Uh, what divisions there were were divisions of class, which is, you know, how, how any good Marxist in, in an ideal world would have it. Uh, so, uh, you know, we created a bifurcated semi-hemi-demi-welfare state designed initially to exclude Blacks uh, in particular. This was not, you know, I mean, in a country that was ethnically and racially and religiously homogenous, 
that didn't even occur to anyone. It wouldn't have been a possibility if they'd tried. Uh, on worker protections, you reported the United States came in way below Estonia. Now, I do know a little about Denmark and Sweden and their kind of legislation, but I never heard of Estonia being a leader in worker protections here. What, what, uh, what is it about Estonia that puts them ahead of the United States? Well, it's not, it, 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 it's not that they're leaders. Estonia is 37th and we are dead last at 38th. What makes it exceptional is that the margins of difference on each of the 56 uh, criteria, Oxfam uh, created a scale of one to 100, 100 being best, zero being worst. And, and usually what we've seen is the, uh, uh, the spectrum at number one starts in the 70s and at the bottom it's in the 40s. And Estonia was in the 40s. We are in the 20s on that, uh, be precisely because the, you know, the American safety net, welfare state, whatever you want to call it, was built to exclude whole parts of the population, blacks, immigrants, and, and so on, which was a bifurcation you didn't see in other countries. And, and so it, it, it's the gap between the next to last Estonia and the last United States that really is breathtaking. And one last question about this. Uh, who in American politics talks about how lousy life is for workers here compared to all other developed countries? Well, mainly Bernie Sanders. Uh, if you listen to his stump speeches, Bernie brings this out all the time. I think that really only speaks to the Democratic base. It kind of informs what they sort of know or what they intuitively feel or whatever. But I think it would behoove other Democrats to do the same. I mean, it, it's useful to know when people talk of American exceptionalism, how that doesn't necessarily mean we're number one. It could mean we're so below Estonia, we're in a class by ourselves. And one last thing, wonderful story in the LA Times, the story of a taqueria that brought in a priest to get worker confessions uh, while they were being investigated by the NLRB. <laughs> this was a a, a taqueria that in Northern California that brought in a priest and the priest told them he wanted the workers to confess uh, about whether they had stolen anything at work, if they'd ever been late for work, and if they did anything to harm their employer. Uh, I wasn't aware that these were sins, but maybe I don't understand uh, the, the confessional. Uh, well, neither do I. I mean, you know, at least, you know, at least he didn't like, you know, molest, sexually molest people in the course of taking their uh, coerced confessions. I mean, there's enough bad news out there every day about the Catholic Church. It's not clear this guy was really a priest. Actually, Correct. It? Cor no, it's not clear. He was yeah. said to yeah. be a priest. And the, the uh, news reports, which went, go all the way from the LA Times to the Guardian covering this story, did not investigate whether the guy actually was a priest. Well, at one end of the spectrum, we have the, uh, the folks who had the night at Dodger Stadium who do all kinds of good while providing essentially a comedy act. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have this guy, which all of which is to say, uh, when you see a clerical collar, make no assumptions. <laughs> Words of wisdom from Harold Meyerson. Read them at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Great to have you back. Great to be here.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A recent USA Today poll shows that 80% of Americans oppose a nationwide ban on abortion. That includes 83% of independents and even 65% of Republicans, while only 14% support a nationwide ban. Nevertheless, one year after the repeal of Roe v. Wade, abortion is banned in 13 states, leaving large regions of the country without abortion care. For an update, we turn to Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent, and she's been traveling through what she calls the abortion borderland in Texas and New Mexico to assess the damage and to see how people seeking abortions and abortion rights activists and providers are doing. Amy, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, John. It's great to be here. You open your report for the nation on the abortion borderlands at a North Texas airport where the Reverend Erica Ferguson meets a group of people who need abortions. Tell us about that. Reverend Erica Ferguson is an interfaith minister. She's been in the movement for reproductive rights and justice for many years. And she has had two abortions herself, one when she was 14, one when she was 18. She sometimes talks about her abortions from the pulpit. She is a Black woman. She understands the risk of criminalization. And yet she has been willing to take this very brave decision to shepherd each week a new group of strangers who live in Texas who need abortions. And she takes them to New Mexico where they can get abortion care that is banned in their home state. Texas is the epicenter of efforts to punish people who help others get abortions. What did Erica Ferguson tell you about the risks she faces? She told me that as a Black woman living in the United States of America, the risk of criminalization is the air she breathes. It's not confined just to these trips. But it's, of course, compounded by the fact that Texas has three different anti-abortion laws in place, including one that bans abortion at around six weeks and allows people to sue with civil lawsuits over anyone who aids or abets an abortion, and then including, of course, criminally banning abortion. Texas is also the epicenter of efforts to use creative news strategies to break new ground in trying to stop anyone who helps someone else get an abortion. We saw this earlier this year when Jonathan Mitchell, the Texas anti-abortion strategist, filed a lawsuit accusing three people who helped their friend get an abortion. They helped her get access to abortion pills. She was going through a divorce and needed access to an abortion. And her ex-husband, found out about it and is suing these friends for over a million dollars each and accusing them of murder. These are the types of strategies that we're seeing coming out of Texas to try to stop um, anyone from helping their friend or their loved one, or in Reverend Erica Ferguson's case, total strangers. She told me that she's motivated to make these trips and to take the risk because of the compassion and care that she received at the clinic when she had her abortions as a teenager that animates her decision to do this work. And so what she does is she meets these women at the airport. She introduces herself by explaining her story, by talking about her abortions. She told me, even though she's a minister, she doesn't talk to the women directly about God, that the way her ministry shows up is in her care 
And it's in the words that she says to them, which is, you are going to be safe. You are going to be cared for. For many of these travelers, they haven't left the state before. They haven't flown before. Some of them have been teenagers. Some of them have been rape victims. Some of them have been moms who leave behind kids of all ages and fly with this group of strangers. They arrive in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're met with volunteers taken to a clinic where they receive their abortions. And then they recover in the headquarters of the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. This is a remarkable faith-based organization that's been around since the 70s. And they are greeted with homemade cookies, um, a freezer that's packed with ravioli, um, art supplies. There are uh, movies, rom-coms there they can watch. And there are massage therapists, doulas, healing justice practitioners. And the goal of the people who have assembled to care for these women, Joan Lemonian Sanford told me, is to send, she's the director of, of the New Mexico RCRC, the goal is to counteract the message that these patients have been sent in their home state, which is you don't deserve to be cared for. And she says, we take care of them. We say to them, no, you are worthy and deserving of that care. And then they and fly then, back to Texas. When they get ready to leave the state after a day when often, you know, these these patients have bonded together, they didn't know each other at the start of this journey, but often they've they've come together in the crucible of this experience. And that's when Reverend Erica Ferguson says to them, listen, this is where I'm going to say goodbye to you because we don't know what's going to happen when this plane touches down in Texas. She understands that there is a risk that she could be arrested. And she says to them, if you see me get arrested or if you see anything happen to me, I want you to walk away as if you have never met me before. And that's when it begins to dawn on these patients the risk that Reverend Ferguson is taking by traveling with them. What's amazing, right, is that in 2020, um, before we started to see these these bands come into play in this way um, in the post-Dobbs era, there were about 5,800 abortions in New Mexico and about 58,000 abortions in Texas. Mm. So the need from Texas alone is enormous. And of course, when clinics in Texas were forced to close, this drove this surge in patients who were, you know, medical refugees um, who needed abortions, who were going to have to, you know, either travel, self-manage or stay pregnant. Um, and so a lot of clinics did follow the, the flow of patients to New Mexico. So the Pink House, the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, which was, of course, the, the plaintiff Jackson Women's Health Organization in the, the Dobbs case that took down Roe v. Wade. They have moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Amy Hagstrom Miller, who sued the state of Texas, I think it's 11 times. Um, she is a Texas abortion provider, um, has been victorious at the Supreme Court before, back when it had a pro-choice majority. She has opened a clinic in Albuquerque. Dr. Alan Braid, um, who, of course, wrote a Washington Post op-ed admitting that he had violated the Texas six-week bounty hunter law that was in place um, before Texas banned abortion outright. He has opened a clinic in New Mexico as well. And then there's the state of New Mexico itself. Right. Michelle Lujan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico, has signed an extraordinary measure. She's allocated $10 million in state funding for a new clinic along the, the border. 
So New Mexico has really gone to great lengths, not only to just defend the status quo, but to say we are going to make sure that we're an abortion haven and we are going to try to do everything we can to ramp up care and take care of people who are coming from other states. You talked briefly about the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, NMRCRC. Tell us a little more about them. So they are an amazing organization. They're an abortion fund. Many listeners might be familiar with abortion funds. These are um, organizations that pay for people's abortions and pay for associated costs. Oftentimes they'll pay for travel, for hotels, for childcare, for things that are increasingly necessary um, when patients need to travel for abortions. And their roots really date back to the um, religious tradition of helping people get abortions, which is part of the conversation about religion and abortion that often gets left out. In the years before Roe v. Wade, clergy formed the Clergy Consultation Service, and they were helping people get abortions, and often openly so, right? These networks were were out front and at the forefront of of helping people get access to safe abortions in in the pre-Roe era. So in 1978, New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice was formed by people that their director, Joan Lemonian Sanford, called volunteer church ladies, I think very fondly. She got involved in the organization. She at one point was running it out of her den. So it was a really grassroots organization. And, you know, there were times in its history where there wasn't a ton of demand. But now in the in the post-ops era, they've seen an enormous rise in demand and their volunteers and their staff are moving mountains to bring people into the state to get the abortions they need. A few numbers that uh, you reported in The Nation. How successful has Texas been in preventing women from getting abortions? What we know in terms of the effectiveness of these bans, I mean, first of all, is that any person being forced to remain pregnant against their will is a human rights tragedy. So, you know, in a certain sense, it's not the numbers that matter. It's these these individual human experiences and the very basic fact that it's people who are already facing poverty, already facing racism and social disadvantages who are most impacted by these bans. But so what we know is that in um, 2020, again, there were over 58,000 abortions um, provided by clinicians in Texas. Um, in 2021, of course, Texas banned abortion at around six weeks. The way that they got around Roe v. Wade still being the law of the land, of course, was with this civil enforcement mechanism that allowed everyday people to sue in order to enforce the ban. Um, and so clinics stopped providing care after about the six-week point. And in the months after that, the number of abortions recorded in Texas dropped by half. I also learned from your piece that nationwide, in the six months after Dobbs, the number of abortions performed by clinicians nationwide dropped by more than 32,000 on the other hand, we know that about half of all abortions pre-Dobbs were medication abortions. Are those still being counted, especially in states like Texas, where it's officially illegal? They are not. It's hard to fully understand the numbers because what people familiar with the informal networks around abortion pill access have told me is that there's more than enough medication abortion 
being shipped into this country and circulating in informal networks within this country to make up for the gap in abortion since the Dobbs decision. What we don't know is how much of that medication abortion is making its way into the hands of the people who need it, because those abortions exist in a legal gray zone. They're risky in many places. And so nobody's recording them officially, as far as I know. But activists familiar with this network tell me that it is robust, that it is flourishing, that people are self-managing their abortions at home, even in states, you know, in every state in the country. We testify and I need an A.com um, to abortion rights organizations put out a newspaper on the Dobbs anniversary. I think it was called the Abortion Times. And the headline was, we are having abortions <laughs> right <laughs> all across the country. We are still having abortions. And so I think that's, you know, one of the top line takeaways since the Dobbs decision. I don't want to put too much of a sugar coating on it because again, Plenty of people are not able to get access to abortion. Those are precisely the the young people, the the people of color, the low income people who are not able to travel. We need to care about every single one of those um, procedures that that is being denied. But on the other hand, I think these grassroots networks should be very proud of the work that they've done. So, in this new world of abortion, abortion seekers and abortion drugs are moving freely. The drugs are moving into the red states, the patients are going into the blue states, and more clinics are moving to the blue states, but also more efforts are being made to stop people from crossing state lines to get to them. You report on what's going on with Texas anti-abortion activists going to Clovis, New Mexico. This is a perennial figure within the anti-abortion movement and someone I've written about a lot, Mark Lee Dixon. He was referred to in a Huffington Post article as the traveling salesman of the anti-abortion movement years ago. He started out in Texas with ordinances called Sanctuary City for the Unborn Ordinances, where he would try to ban abortion and did, you know, pass these ordinances in towns across Texas. He worked with Jonathan Mitchell, the architect, you know, together they would go on to, to promote the six-week abortion ban. And no one really took notice of what they were doing um, in the beginning, but it turned out that the private civil enforcement mechanism they were using in these ordinances would make its way into Senate Bill 8, the Texas uh, six-week ban that became the law of the land and allowed Texas to ban abortion at six weeks while Roe v. Wade was still in effect. So now Jonathan Mitchell and Mark Lee Dixon have paired up again. They've made a version of the ordinance that they hope is going to fly in New Mexico, a state that is going to great lengths to protect abortion access. And the way that they're doing that is they've crafted the ordinance so that it revives the Comstock Act. The Comstock Act is a law from 1873 named for anti-vice crusader Anthony Comstock. I'm, I'm um, shaking my head over this idea, but please, please continue. <laughs> um, I think historians are doing exactly the same thing that you are, John. So Anthony Comstock would go after people for pornographic drawings, for filthy material, what he considered any kind of filth or information about contraception. Margaret Sanger, Emma Goldman famously ran afoul of his uh, anti-vice laws. And this law from the Victorian era also banned the mailing of abortion-related drugs, devices, and uh, paraphernalia. 
what Jonathan Mitchell and Markley Dixon are, are arguing is that this law, which hasn't been enforced in almost a century, is in fact still in force, that it bans the mailing of all abortion drugs and devices. If the Supreme Court decides to take them at their word, this would result in a, a total nationwide abortion ban because providers would not be able to operate if they can't get, you know, abortion related paraphernalia and devices, you know, they can't order surgical gloves like this could be extended to include a whole lot of different uh, necessary items, including, you know, medication abortion itself, um, which, as you pointed out, is the most popular you know, form of abortion nationwide. So this is their next crusade. They're doing it in New Mexico, I think, quite intentionally. They've already gotten opposition from the state of New Mexico, which I think is what they want. They are hoping that they will get enough legal cases in the air that it entices the Supreme Court to tackle head on the question of whether the Comstock Act and its literal reading based on the text of the law is still in force and amounts to a total nationwide abortion ban. Why do they want to do this with the Comstock Act? You know, it's a great question. And I think the answer is at the top, you read some statistics about how the American people feel about the idea of a nationwide abortion ban. Okay. I think a lot of Republicans, especially in the wake of the 2022 midterms and the red wave that never was, are realizing that supporting the most extreme anti abortion policies is a losing proposition for them. And so I think anti-abortion activists are reading the writing on the wall and understanding they're not going to pass a nationwide abortion ban anytime soon. And in fact, these state level abortion bans they're, they're passing are deeply unpopular, even in red states. And so they're looking at the history books and they're thinking, huh, what laws are already out there? We don't need to pass them. Doesn't require the buy in of the American people. All it requires, as happened with the Dobbs decision is an extremely conservative Supreme Court. And guess what? They've got that. And so uh, I think that's where a lot of these strategies are coming from, is uh, the idea of subverting the democratic process entirely and reviving these zombie laws from the history books rather than, than trying to pass new proposals that would not gain public approval. I understand that last weekend you went to the National Right to Life Convention in Pittsburgh. Are they feeling triumphant and celebrating their historic uh, victory at the Supreme Court? You know, you might think they would be, John, a year after the Dobbs decision, right? I mean, they worked for almost half a century to overturn Roe v. Wade. But what I found, in fact, is that they are not celebrating. Um, in fact, the tone there was very somber and measured and while, of course, many of them, especially people, you know, in states where they have succeeded in banning abortion, were proud of that. Overall, I think what they're realizing is that they have two very serious problems on their hands. The first, which we've already talked about, is that their bans are deeply unpopular. And their, you know, extreme vision for anti-abortion policy, which is banning all abortions except to save the life of the pregnant person, is, you know, something that a very small minority of the population shares. And the second problem that they have on their hands is that these bans are not working anywhere near as well as they had hoped they would. And so I was in a panel with James Bopp. James Bopp has been a conservative activist for many years. He's been general counsel of National Right to Life since 1978. And 
when he found that campaign finance rules were getting in his way uh, with trying to curry favor with politicians, he decided to take those down uh, along his journey to overturning Roe v. Wade. And so that culminated in the Citizens United Supreme Court decision. Um, He was the architect of that. And he's also one of the main strategists behind the incremental, the chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at abortion access over time. That's really sort of his hallmark strategy and led to the overturn of of Roe v. Wade in this huge victory. But he read aloud to this room in, in his panel at National Right to Life, a new statistic that just came out from the Society for Family Planning. And he said he would have expected the number of abortions to drop by something like 300,000 after the Dobbs decision. Instead, after Dobbs, what this new survey has found is that in the nine months after Dobbs, the number of abortions dropped by about 25,000. This number is very disappointing to people like James Bopp. And when he read it aloud in this meeting room at the National Right to Life Convention, you could have heard a pin drop. In fact, I heard somebody whistle. (laughs) <laughs> they were not pleased with that number. And so these bans are not working. I think in part, the credit to that in large part to, you know, belongs to groups like the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, belongs to activists like Reverend Erica Ferguson, who are moving mountains to get people access to, to abortions. But these bans have, have turned out to be quite permeable and they've come at great political cost. So after uh, all your travels for the last few weeks, what do you conclude about life on the abortion borderland? Well, John, what I've concluded is that the anti-abortion movement has yet to come up with a ban that can't be circumvented by a plane trip or a road trip or by someone handing a friend five white tablets that fit into the palm of their hand. The fatal flaw in the anti-abortion strategy is that plenty of people are still doing this work despite the risks. People like Reverend Erica Ferguson, um, abortion funds um, all across the country. That is the hopeful note that I end my piece on. And if people want to help, what do you suggest? For instance, the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice? Yes, absolutely. The New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice is a great place to donate. You can also go to the National Network of Abortion Funds if you want to find your local abortion fund. I would also encourage people to go to the nation's website and read the entire amazing special issue. And we do have a list of information in there for um, ways that you can help. Amy Littlefield's report on the abortion borderland is the lead piece in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Sean. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now from the archives, Katha Pollitt on Learning to Drive. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We spoke with her in September 2007. Here in L.A., everybody learns to drive when they're 16 years old. You're a New Yorker. How old were you when you learned to drive? I was 51. And why? (laughs) Why did you wait? uh, Great big feminist that I am, I had always managed to find um, husbands and boyfriends who would do the driving. 
um, on the rare occasions when I needed to drive. In so, New York, you don't need to drive. So I yes, I I, I I've heard about it's that. A you big have... liability to have a car in New York. And and uh, so what what led you to take driving lessons when you were fifty one? Well, um, my boyfriend who was driving me around walked out, <laughs> and uh, it was either uh, get my driver's license or give up my house in Connecticut and uh, confess that I was just a chauvinized helpless, you know, sexist-defied female. And uh, so this learning to drive becomes kind of a metaphor of your transformation, let us say. And uh, this wonderful essay, which our readers might remember from The New Yorker, um, it, uh, has a lot about your driving instructor who you found to be quite perceptive about you. He was a wonderful man, Ben. Um, I had had other driving teachers. I mean, I had previously tried to learn to drive and failed the driving test several times. Um, but Ben was really wonderful. He was great. He was like the ideal boyfriend. He, <laughs> he, he, he was very concerned. He uh, was kind, but he was also sort of firm, and um, he was truthful. Like, I asked him, well, say I had to take the test tomorrow, Ben. How would I do? He'd say, well, I'd say 50-50, and, and I write that, you know, those seemed like good odds to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was very patient, and he worried a lot about me. Um, I liked him very much. And he had that one memorable line about your weakness. Yes, he says, observation, Kata, observation, this is your weakness. <laughs> and of course, this was true in many areas of my life, that um, Another person would have seen the uh, trouble in my relationship building for a very long time. And, and yet you are well known for how, what a perceptive columnist and writer you are. How could observation be your problem here? Well, I guess one answer would be that I'm sure I'm not the only writer who can see things on the page that she can't see when she takes her eye off the off the keyboard. Um, and another answer would be, I think, you know, the personal and the political are related in very complicated ways. Um, and it's very possible to see something in everybody else's life and in society as a whole, and you just don't see it in your own life because you're in the middle of your life, but you're, you don't have the same perspective. Uh, maybe we should make it clear what it was in your own life that you were not seeing. That uh, well, my boyfriend was flagrantly a flagrant philanderer, um, flagrant womanizer. Um, he always has been, had been. Um, but, you know, so ladies out there, if you think that your man is reformed, it may not be so, um, and your friends will not tell you. Um, so uh, after that happened, I, I um, realized that I um, needed to become a more clear-sighted person. And you wrote a wonderful essay about the process you call uh, learning to drive, which was then published in the New Yorker. And you say, after it was published, you got mail from a lot of other women. Oh yes, I got. A, I, I guess about forty percent of the mail was about people wanting to tell me their own stories of how hard it was for them to learn to drive, and wanting the name <laughs> of my driving instructor. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, the other sixty percent was people telling me that the same thing had happened to them, and a few people uh, writing to tell me that the same thing had happened to them with the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny.
Katha Pollitt wrote about learning to drive for The New Yorker, her essay was later made into a movie starring Ben Kingsley as the driving instructor, and Katha was played by the wonderful Patricia Clarkson. We spoke with her about learning to drive in September 2007. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music